Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you. And I want to go ahead and have you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers not be hindered. Father, we thank you for the fact that Our faith is not the contrivance of man, and that we receive teaching that is of you, that is not adjusted or conformed to any culture or any time, but cuts and critiques and transforms culture and relationships at every level. No matter when texts like this have been read and applied, it changes things for the better. And so I pray that the same effect would happen today. That wives would see in the behavior of Jesus a model for submission. And that husbands would see in the behavior of Jesus a model of gentleness and understanding pray against any misunderstanding that can come in dealing with texts like this. I pray that those that aren't particularly addressed, those who are not married, would yet see in this God's wisdom and would see what they should be looking for in a potential spouse. And for those that have lost their spouses, I pray that they would yet still model these same things and be examples to the rest of us how to be. I just pray for your grace and your help. I pray for humility and eagerness to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I do want to say a very happy Mother's Day to you. 
And it is not a coincidence in God's sense, but it is not intentional on my part to be in this text on Mother's Day, I promise. About a month ago, I looked up and said, when is Mother's Day this year? And it lined up with the preaching schedule to be this week. And my thought was, of course it is. Of course it is. In all seriousness, no, though, I do wish a very happy Mother's Day to all of you. And I do mean all of you to the mothers in this room who slave away raising little humans in the fear and admonition of the Lord, which is often a relentless and thankless job. Thank you. Your reward now and in heaven will be great. And to those in this room who, for whom this day is a painful reminder of your longing to be a, mo- a mother, and yet you're willing to be a spiritual mother to younger brothers and sisters in Christ who need many mothers in the faith to stand aright, thank you. And to the rest of us, we need to understand that being motherly is God's invention And Adam calls Eve that name specifically because she is the mother of all the living before she's even pregnant with Cain. Fascinating. We need to understand that in God's economy of how the world is transformed, we don't just need men out there blazing the trail. We need nurturers. And so we thank you for your motherly disposition regardless of whether or not you have your own children So, even though there's nothing in the Bible about setting aside particular days to honor different people, we're commanded to honor everyone and to give honor to whom honor is owed. And I would argue that mothers are near, if not at, the top of the list of those who deserve honor with respect to our relationships. So, it is important that you feel and sense that you're honored So the plan today, uh, even though it may be on the surface a funny or awkward coincidence that we're in this passage on Mother's Day, the plan is to address it head, head on and tackle it just as we've done with all the other passages about submission up to this point. I'm going to do it unapologetically. Um. My plan originally, just so you know, my plan was to treat these seven verses in three weeks to have a sermon on submissive wives. And the next sermon on biblical modesty, that excursus about modesty, and then a sermon on understanding husbands. And the plan now, up recently as Wednesday, even Thursday morning, that was my plan. But I think there's some wisdom in treating it all together. Much of what I planned to say to hedge in this teaching on submission is exactly there in the text. And the wisdom of treating it together, I think, is evident even exegetically. So that's the plan now. We're addressing all seven verses together. So I'm going to try to cram, for those of you who know my preaching style well, this is three hours of content into hopefully less than one hour. So I want to begin, though, with reminding all of us why this text exists in the first place. Just to review, you need to remember what your glorious identity in Christ is. Verses 9 and 10, chapter 2, so central to Paul, uh, Peter, rather, Peter's argument. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is your identity. And you now have a job as part of an eternal royal priesthood to proclaim the excellencies of our God to others, to each other, to the Lord Himself, and to His angels. That's your job in this. That is a glorious, eternal identity that every Christian individually has and that we have together. So what Peter then does right after that glorious eternal identity, is to say, and here's how you do it. And goes into this cyclical uh, pattern of talking about submission. Subjecting yourself, which is kind of a contrast of expectation versus reality. If you just gave someone verses 9 and 10, I don't think the first ideas that would come to your mind would be submission and submitting yourself. But this is, in fact, what Peter says. The way that we proclaim God's excellencies, following the example of Jesus, is through submission. And that is why uh, we need to re-familiarize ourselves, I think, with the doctrine of what is called, if you want the fancy theological term, Christus exemplar. Christ is our example. It's a beautiful truth. Jesus is not just our Savior, our substitute, our high priest, our king, our God. He is, but he is also our example. There is such liberation and freedom and flexibility and, I would add, escape from unreasonable expectations from culture, parents, friends, whatever, to have it as your goal in life to simply follow the example of Jesus. What does God want from your life? What is God's will for you? Especially you young people as you try to figure these things out. He wants you to follow the example of Jesus. That's it. However you can do it, to the best of your ability, using all the resources and talents that He's given you, follow the example of Jesus. And the reward that was His will be yours as well. This is God's design. Our aim is not just Christ-likeness in some boring moral sense, but to follow His example, to live like He lived, to love like He loves, to show compassion and pity like He does, to serve like He did. You can say that you want to live for the glory of God all you want, but if your pattern of life is not like the life of Jesus, if it does not give off that same air or flavor of kindness and humility, God's not very interested then in the glory that you're trying to render Him. He expects and wants it to look like His Son. That's the point. As Peter said in the previous verses, that you might follow in His footsteps, in lockstep with the behavior of Jesus. That's the idea. And the point is this, the example of Jesus then is authoritative for all Christians everywhere. Doesn't matter your station or status or level of authority or your gender, the example of Jesus is authoritative. And what is fascinating about this text is that Peter, when, as Peter turns his attention to the home, 
to, to the family within the church. He's talked about all of us submitting to the governing authorities, and he's talked about slaves and masters, particularly addressing the slaves, gives the example of Jesus, and now he turns his attention to husbands and wives. He does not follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul. Paul exhorts husbands to model the behavior of Jesus, and he exhorts wives to follow the behavior of the church as the church submits to Christ. But that is not what we find here. The church isn't mentioned at all. No, Christ, and this is Peter's flavor, Christ is the model for both husbands and wives. And this is the point. We are not merely just reenacting the drama of Christ's pursuit of his bride and the bride's response to Christ. We are also meant to display the character of Christ's submission to the Father and his humble honoring of the Father towards each other simultaneously. That's the point of this text and the context and why Christ being our example, whether your husband or wife, is important. And remember what Jesus accomplished by this. This is why the example of Jesus is so central. So you got to see the, the balance of this text. You have first exhortation to everyone, submission to governing authorities, and then submission of slaves to masters. And then right in the middle, you have the example of Jesus and then Wives, then husbands. Christ's example then is held as central, even in the structure of the text, to point us to why we should behave the way that he's telling us to. The objective, of course, is salvation, especially as it applies to wives in this context. It's the same objective, salvation. Jesus accomplished the salvation of us all because he was willing to endure even unjust treatment from those in at least earthly authority over him. When he was reviled, this is verse 23. When he was reviled, he, of chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And this is the point It is still God's plan to save in this way. God commends His gospel even as we hope in Him suffering in circumstances that are beyond our control. Understand, this is not just a question of some abiding principle of gender roles and conformity to those roles as a requirement for all Christians. But rather, the requirement here, even husbands and wives at the same time, is to follow the example of Jesus that by any means possible, we might save some. You have to have a laser focus on salvation and glorifying the Lord as we proclaim His excellencies so that some of the Gentiles might turn from their sin and be spared. That's the point. You have to have that as the objective of your marriage or it's just going to be something else, some some bland, impersonal objective. You're missionaries together for the glory of God. Even if your spouse doesn't obey the word, as we'll see. So, armed with the safety and grace and beauty of Christ's example and armed with that laser focus on salvation, we can wade into the waters 
of how wives are to submit to their husbands and how husbands are to honor their wives. So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You know, there are a lot of offensive things about biblical teaching. You can just flip to any page you like and take your pick. There are many number of things that would offend, especially in our culture. But this one is up there near the top. I said this in connection to the words used earlier in the, in the letter, earlier in the letter about submission, particularly verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, that there's really no ambiguity here. The ambiguity comes from our questions of the text. This word is basic and plain, and it means obey or yield to or even arrange yourself underneath with respect to authority. So let me say with the same amount of clarity I did in the previous passages about submission to authority in our lives, the biblical summons wives is to submit to your husband's. And I want you to remember why. No, it's not because they are physically stronger than you. That may be true, as we'll see in a bit. And it's not because they're smarter or wiser than you. That is often not the case, as we'll see. And it's not because you are of any lesser value. The text clearly states that we're co-heirs. Rather, it is because this is the example of the Lord Jesus. This is a significant reason for submission that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Typically, what we point to is the church in its submission to Christ as the model for wives, and that is very true. That's not the point of this text. The summons for wives to submit to their husband is in the context of Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. You are not just given to your husband to portray the ideal submission of the church to the Lord, but you're, but also, we might even say in a more fundamental sense, you're given to portray the behavior of Christ to your husband, to remind him of the Lord of all the earth through emulating his humble submission to the will of the Father. You're reenacting that display. And I'll say the same things I said a few weeks ago. You must obey God rather than men, even if that man is your husband. If those two authorities are in conflict. And also, this is more of a question, more a question of posture and attitude and heart than it is answering all the specific nitty gritties about exception cases that might trouble us. And they are there. And I'll ask the same type of question that I asked when I was speaking about submission to governing authorities. How would you want, wives, someone under your authority to respond to you if you're in the wrong? Maybe one of your children or a student. Anyone who are, are, are a subordinate at work. How would you want them to respond to you when you're in the wrong? I think that is a model for how you ought to respond to your husband when he is very often in the wrong. Again, attitude, posture, heart. There are warnings to husbands that we will mention at the end, specifically from verse 7. So do know that this is hedged in. Biblical submission to your husband is hedged. Husbands, you cannot insist 
that your wives submit to you, really at all, but especially if you are not properly submitted to the authority in your life. It's just rank hypocrisy. And it stinks to high heaven. Literally. The church and state, wives, is there to protect you. Statistics show 10 to 20% of wives are abused by their husbands in terrible ways. And so in a room this size, you can do the math. Again, the church and state are here to protect you. So, those troubling, painful, heartbreaking exception cases are there. And the warnings to the husband in verse 7 apply. But, nonetheless, I do want to talk about this attitude of submission that Peter is exhorting wives to have within the church. Wives... There are perhaps innumerable different versions of being catty, contriving, controlling, manipulative, overbearing, nagging, haughty, passive-aggressive. And part of it is because you have the emotional uh, sophistication to pull it off. For us guys, it often feels like we're moving in slow motion to try and keep up with what you guys have going on. You ladies have going on. But all of that contriving, controlling, manipulative, catty behavior, none of it is respectful, pure, or submissive. None of it. The heart is what I'm after here, sisters. Because that's what Peter is after. And why is none of that, and you know what I'm talking about, why is none of that respectful, pure, or honoring? Because it doesn't look anything like the behavior of Jesus. That's the point. If you can say with full faith and biblical support, yes, this is how Jesus would have acted. And maybe you have grounds to resist and say something, but... If it's hard to say, yeah, I could see Christ doing this or saying this or acting this way or responding this way, it's not acceptable. Not in Peter's mind. Even if you have to disobey and go against the will of your husband, which there may be cases to do that, there is a Christ-like way to do it. And a lot of it has to do with your attitude and your heart and your demeanor. Again, I wish we had time to just go through and expound the the story of Abigail from the Old Testament, but I think she would be a model of how to, even in the case where her husband was literally a fool, how to still honor him and save his life uh, because in view of his folly. So that's submissive wives. Now let's talk about victorious wives. Peter says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, clearly seen in this passage, Peter's objective, his laser focus is on salvation. He wants people to be saved. Is that our hierarchy in our homes? Is that number one on the list? We want people to be saved. Does that inform your behavior towards your spouse? We want people to be saved. 
This text is fascinating to me in a few different ways. Uh, first, it's the, it's the only clear indication, as far as the text is concerned, that submission has a chance to alter the behavior of the other person. Not until we get to uh, verse 15 in chapter 3, if you want to just look there. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. So, so maybe there's some indication that they're curious enough at least to ask us. But that's vague at best. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, we, we see Peter say this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But it's ambiguous. When is this going to happen? It could be at the very end, and they finally see, well, you guys were right the whole time. But here, there's a chance, perhaps even a very strong chance, that the husbands might be one. There's no indication, as far as the text is concerned, that the emperor will be won over by the example of believers who submit. Not even governors. No, no indication, as far as the text is concerned, that the unjust masters will be won over. Of course, that would be implicit. We would hope that would happen. But with wives and husbands, it says they may be won. So wives, it may not feel like it, but you wield a lot of power and influence. Don't squander it by being catty and insubordinate in the mold of the modern woman. Who is your example? Is it Sarah or is it your favorite celebrity? Remember the goal, salvation. We model the behavior of Jesus in order to persuade others that our hope is real and our God is just and our Savior is alive. And so, wives, your way of responding to your husband has a chance to win him. And it's striking because of the construction here that we find obey the word. Fascinating. The place that that harkens back to in 1 Peter is actually chapter 2, verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. One of the hardest verses in the whole letter. And as hopeless as the case seems for those in chapter 2, verse 8, who disobey the word, yet in the case of husbands who disobey the word, whose wives are believers, there's a chance that they could be one. It's a very hopeful passage in the context. The wife, indeed, may be the victor in the struggle. This is the third reason that I think it's a fascinating text. Women, poetically and philosophically, are often depicted as passive and receptive. That's the way even some theologians present it. Whereas men are depicted as active and outward and outgoing. Yet this text depicts the woman... The wife, even one considered of lower estate in culture, as the one who has the keys to victory. She's the one, through her humble and submissive behavior, who can win. Now, I think the first and most obvious application of this text is to those who are believing wives whose husbands are unbelieving. If this is you, if your husband is an unbeliever, Take 
courage. You have a higher and biblically sanctioned means of winning over your husband than any other case mentioned in the text. And you can do it without, proverbially speaking, saying a word. Through submissive, respectful, and pure conduct. Don't squander your power. And I want to give a word to husbands who do not obey the word whose wives are believers. You can insist on any line of evidence that you want in order to believe. You can have all your reasons not to believe. In answer to to both of those, though, the Lord has given something better to you, one of His daughters, to portray to you before your very eyes the character of our Lord Jesus. From the moment you married her or from the moment that she became a believer, the Lord has given you better proof for the truth of the gospel and better answers to all your questions and answers to better questions than you could ever hope for. Don't squander this wonderful gift of God's witness to you. Be one. Be one over Year after year, she has been portraying to you as best she can the glories of the Savior. What blessing and joy could be yours, all yours today, if you would allow her living witness to win you over. The tense of the verb, though, also indicates that this could also apply to husbands who are currently not obeying the word. It's being disobedient. So that if some are being disobedient, they might be one. Peter himself, when he gets to Antioch, starts living, acting at their fellowship meals in a way that is out of step with the gospel. He was being disobedient to the word in some sense. Paul says in his correspondence with Timothy that if someone does not provide for the needs of his own household, that he has denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. Even if he's claiming to be a believer. And James says, if anyone brings back a sinner from his wandering, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So you may be a husband in this room who claims to believe the word, but is walking in disobedience to the word. Your wife is given to you to bring you back. Are you humble enough to see it? The Lord has given you one of his daughters to keep you close to him. You need to repent and be won over as well. Here's the thing about men. We're drawn to power and force and strength. And so when we are in sin and living in pride or harshness or belligerence, usually we won't change or consider our ways unless something stronger comes along and hands our rear end to us, knocks us down, or until our own repeated foolishness undoes us. Man, we need the humbling work of God in our lives. And the daily effect of your godly wife, men, is God's way to gently tame you and train you to be better and more useful for his purposes. 
Will you be won over by the godly example of your wives, men? Are you being disobedient to the word in some area of your life? God has given you one of his daughters to shine a light on that disobedience. Do not take for granted her submission to you. You do not want to walk into judgment day with unrepented of sin, all while having God's power and pressure on you through her to cut it out this whole time. Don't spurn his gift. I'll read verses 3 through 6 again. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the gentle, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For to this, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do what is good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is a passage, these verses together, I meant to spend a whole sermon on this, as I said. Um, so you'll forgive me if I don't answer every question and issue found in and around these matters. What to wear. How to tackle this and not spend an hour on it. I will highlight four contrasts in the text. Four contrasts that I see. The first one is not external, but internal. Not external, but internal. This is not an outright prohibition of things like jewelry or braided hair, because if we said that, due to the context, we would also have to prohibit clothing, which I don't think we want to do that. No, this is, might we say, a matter of emphasis. What do you put all the time and effort into? Dear sisters, our culture tells you and tries to sell you a bill of goods teaching you that your value is tied up in your physical appearance. That is orthodox doctrine for the world. And some of you may think that your value to your husband is in part or in a major way tied up with your physical appearance. And this text clearly shows that the thing that you bring to the table most, the most valuable thing that you bring into the marriage, isn't your physical appearance, but your display of the character of Christ. Again, a laser focus on salvation. You are the one given to your husband, if you're married, to help him persevere to the end. And the way you're going to help him do that most isn't by being cute. It's by being like Christ. Certainly, hear me clearly, there is nothing wrong with looking nice and even working to look very appealing to your husband. Just read the Song of Solomon. And there's nothing wrong with trying to look very appealing to a potential spouse. Just read Ruth. There is nothing wrong with presenting yourself in a beautiful way, and there is everything right about stewarding your body, not only for longevity of service to the Lord, but also for your spouse. Nothing wrong with that. But the matter is, again, a matter of emphasis here. What are you really worried about? In short, there are more lasting and more eternal ways to be beautiful. And what you will be in your glorified state, dear sisters, is more beautiful than anything this world can currently appreciate or house. 
But how much time and energy and resources and worry are you spending on that external adornment versus the internal adornment of the heart? That's the first contrast. Not external, but internal. Second contrast, not perishable, but imperishable. He says in verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, implying that this outward adornment, focusing so much on that, is perishable. And why? Why should you not let your adornment be external? Because it's going to go away. The internal adornment of this gentle and quiet spirit does not perish. You know that old adage, you can't take anything with you? Talking about after you die, going to heaven, you can't take anything with you. That's not exactly true. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit can go with you. It's imperishable. Be beautiful in that way. That's the point of the text. I'll let Lewis do some heavy hitting for me on this point. My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Oh, Susan, said Jill. She's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She's, she always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said Lady Polly. I wish she would really grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now. And she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there as long as she can. This is the question, sisters. What are you really seeking How does your time allotment to things like makeup or vanity answer that question? Again, nothing wrong with presenting yourself in a beautiful way. Nothing wrong with spending time on it. But what are you really worried about? What dominates your heart? What are you actively trying to put on? Are you trying to draw attention to yourself or to the Lord Jesus in the way you act? And dress. And that may sound overly spiritual in this context, but that's exactly the issue of this text. Because the context is, again, salvation and how we portray Christ-likeness in our behavior. And it is reflected in real choices every day. The third contrast in this text. Holy submission versus insubordination. And the insubordination is implied. We're given the example of Sarah to show us that on the one hand, you have a, a way to maybe be outwardly beautiful, but just ugly in your behavior through insubordination and bad attitudes. This adornment is further specified, not just as being a gentle and quiet spirit, which, by the way, alludes back to Jesus, not just some expectation forever on women or femininity in general, Jesus had a gentle and quiet spirit. That's why all of us should have a gentle and quiet spirit. That's the point. 
Also, though, it's not just that. It, it is the idea of obedience, even going so far as to highlight an example of extraordinary obedience and submission and respect in Sarah and how she submitted to Abraham. She even calls him Lord. I had a lot I wanted to say in connection with this, quoting from multiple different commentaries and all that. We just don't have time. If you want it, I can send it to you. But in short, no, this does not mean, wives, that you need to call your husband's Lord. If they're insisting on that, come talk to me, please. Um, Peter is showing the sides of the spectrum. Sarah is held up as an example to women in the church. And she submits to Abraham even when he makes questionable decisions. In fact, the reference here using the word Lord is tethered to the situation in the court where he comes up with this ruse to pull the wool over the king of Egypt's eyes. There is an insubordinate, disrespectful way she could have done that and responded to that. But Sarah is held up in her behavior in submitting to Abraham as the example. She's a role model then for all believing women. So that's the third contrast. The fourth contrast in these verses is hope versus fear. Hope versus fear. The holy women who hoped in God versus fear at the end if you do not fear anything that is frightening. This is the point. You hope in God, not in your husband being awesome or never making a mistake. And I think the point Peter is making here is multifaceted. Number one, I think fear is often a major motivation for vanity for focusing too much on your physical appearance. What if, what if, what if? What if my husband no longer finds me attractive? So the exhortation to hope in God versus fear applies directly to that. But secondly, I think there is also potentially, and not just potentially, very likely, a lot of fear connected with adorning yourself with submission to your husband. Because what if he makes a stupid-headed decision? And I'll just go ahead and tell you, he's going to, just like Abraham. And when he does, the path will be before him for his story to either end like Nabal, Abigail's husband, or like Abraham with repentance. That will be the path before him. And your behavior towards him can help him see the better path. We can trust that the Lord will work through you as you work to adorn yourself with a humble and submissive posture. We're to be fearless children of Sarah. I think it's fascinating. I had a lot to say about this, that he uses the word children instead of daughters. I think there is implication that the text also applies to men. I think there are ways for men to be immodest and it doesn't have anything to do with skin exposure. That's not even what this is talking about with women either. We're to be fearless children of Sarah. This is what Karen Jobes, a commentator, said. The Christian women of Asia Minor are daughters of Sarah if they do what is right and do not give way to the kind of fear that results in hatred and hostility. 
Therefore, Christian women married even to unbelieving men are not to despise and reject their husbands, making the household climate one of hostility, but to subject themselves even to unjust treatment because of their faith in Christ, and in so doing, accomplish God's better way. Also, I think it's so encouraging that the Bible acknowledges that there are frightening things in the world. It doesn't say, don't fear because there's no such thing as a fearful thing. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter is is affirming that there are frightening things in the world. And sadly, one of the frightening things in your life might be the prospect of being properly submitted to your husband. Especially if he does not obey of the word or is not obeying the word. But the hope for you, dear sister, is that being a child of Sarah, the free woman, you will inherit the promise. Your hope is not here. Wisdom personified as a woman in the book of Proverbs laughs at days to come. I want to thread the needle, obviously, and I want to hedge against mistreatment from husbands, and that's to come. And Peter does that himself, so I'm not foisting that on the text. So just know, though, as we move on from this concept of biblical modesty, that modesty is for men too. There are just as many ways for you, brothers, to be immodest, and a lot of them have nothing to do with how you dress. The point here, following the example of these godly wives is, are you drawing attention to Christ, or are you drawing attention to yourself? The way we talk and the way we insert ourselves into social settings can be very immodest. But we'll have to leave that aside. And so we come to understanding husbands. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The first question I have of this text, like this is the way that the Lord has wired me, I think, or it might be just my own issues. But whenever I look at anything, I just see problems. And when I read the Bible, I see problems too. Obviously, the text is inerrant, but when I read it, I just have all these questions. Why did he say it that way? Why that word and not this word? Why is it that different than what he said over here? Why, what, what is happening here? And this, this is how I prepare sermons, just so you know. Um, but the question is, why address husband second? That seems odd in the order of things. And there's been several answers that I've heard, and I don't think most of them are satisfying, but uh, Karen Jobes pointed this out. Um, I think he addresses husbands second, and one of, one of the reasons is to dignify wives with a direct address. Notice what he does not say in verse 1. He does not say, husbands, teach your wives to submit to you. He addresses wives directly. This is fascinating. Husbands, the Apostle Peter then jumps in front of you to directly address your wife. Are you acting as the gatekeeper for her? Do you see it as your job to teach her, or do you see it as her responsibility to gain from the Bible what she needs? Who is in charge of your house, husbands? Is it you? Is that the form and flavor of the way you lead your house? Or does your manner of leadership and servanthood indicate Jesus Christ, through his apostles, is in charge of this house? 
The Apostle Peter directs, directly addresses your wives and doesn't, doesn't bring you into the equation until afterwards. Husbands, you are not the king of your castle. You are a son functioning as a steward for the emperor beyond the sea for the benefit of his daughter. And you and I need to get our act together to be better stewards. That's the point here. Secondly, the reason why I think husbands are addressed. Second, is to hedge against mistreatment of wives from their husbands who would take this verse about submission and weaponize it. Literally, the text would read like this. Likewise, husbands live with them in an understanding way. We just put the word wives there to make it make sense. Live with them in an understanding way, pointing back to wives. We'll address this problem of weaponizing teachings about submission at the very end, along with the warning that Peter gives. It is interesting, though, this text is a little bit different. He doesn't say the word submit, even though if you look after, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're to consider, yes, even those under our authority as more significant than ourselves, according to Paul's teaching in Philippians. But he doesn't command husbands to submit. He says, though, likewise. Husbands, you may think that because we husbands are not addressed directly or explicitly told to submit, that you then have the right to act as the Lord of your house. You do not. Not the case. The word translated here likewise means in the same way, which points back to what? Because the same word is used when referencing wives, likewise wives, likewise husbands. So what are we pointing back to? He hasn't used that word until chapter 3. He's pointing back to the example of the Lord Jesus, Christus exemplar. He is our example. Husbands and wives following the example of Jesus towards each other. Your job, husband, is to emulate this sacrificial, self-abasing servitude towards your wives, even in your capacity as the leader in your home. It is not just Jesus' headship of the church that you are to model to your wife. Oh, a lot of preachers and teachers love that concept of headship. The idea in this text clearly is that Jesus is the suffering servant. That's, that's all the text in the Old Testament that he is drawing on to exalt Christ as our example to follow. He is the sacred head now wounded for the sake of his bride. This is why when we talk about leadership in the context of the church, we very often modify the word leadership with servant leadership. And here's the point. There is no legitimate form of leadership in God's eyes that is not servant leadership. Because that is the example of Christ. He led by being a servant. Husbands, model the whole Christ to your wife. In his passion, he was giving himself selflessly. This word here, it says, uh, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. The, the word has the basic meaning of this. Live with your wives in a knowledgeable way. Three ways to think about this. 
What does it mean to be an understanding husband or a knowledgeable husband? I think there's an obvious way to answer that question. That is, no. Get it together. Remember stuff. Birthdays, anniversaries, plural, Valentine's, Mother's Day. Have a mental or real notebook. Keep notes. We study everything else, guys. We're experts on everything else. Fantasy football, smoking meats, parts and tools, processes, politics, theology, methods of work, finances. Be an expert on your wife. Wives, help us out a little bit because sometimes it's like studying the weather. (laughs) But to be fair, men, I think oftentimes we just forget or we don't care to study and to really appreciate the reasons behind the complexity and the beauty of our wives. I don't know what it would do to your marriage if you, husbands, begin studying your wives with the same amount of energy and care that you apply to your top interests, whether that's for work or a hobby. But it would probably make you a much better and happier man by far. Be a knowledgeable husband. There's a second way of taking this word know or knowledgeable or understanding, and that is the relational aspect. As in knowing Christ Jesus, my word, my Lord. This word is translated in the ESV in almost every other case as just general knowledge uh, in a mental or cognitive sense. But in two places, it, it the word strongly conveys something else, a very relational, personal thing. Philippians 3.8, it's the same word here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. In neither context then can that word know or knowledge mean something as basic as learn more theology or memorize more Scripture. In those two passages, speaking specifically about the Lord Jesus, it means to really know Him in a deeply personal way. To see Him with the eyes of your heart and to behold the outline of His character and the essence of his heart, and to know and see that he knows you, to have a sight of the fact that you are seen through and through by him. And this is the point. You're to know your wives that way, husbands. You're you're supposed to really get them. To really see them and understand what they're all about. To have a deeply personal knowledge that is more than just knowing facts about them. Thirdly, I think there's a contextual way he talks about showing them honor. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. He gives us guys, very helpful for us, an extremely practical way of showing, being an understanding husband. It's a present active participle, which could be translated this way, by continually showing her honor. So we could put this in a catechism type of question. What does a husband do when he is living with his wife in a biblically knowledgeable way? Answer, he honors his wife. 
And this is interesting for a few reasons, because in an honor-based society at that time, and in some theological circles now, honor is rendered from the subordinate to the superior. So this would have been a shocking statement. Yet, in fact, in the terminology of the New Testament, the emphasis is that husbands are to honor their wives. We are all commanded to outdo one another in showing honor, so wives should also honor their husbands. The point is, that goes without saying. What often does not go without saying, and what needs to be repeated, is that husbands, you must honor your wives. He says, as the weaker vessel. I said at the beginning, there's a lot of offensive language in the Bible. This is another one. Um, In the context, though, this is talking about physical strength and also social advantage, especially in that time. Men are generally stronger physically, but also almost always socially more advantaged. And the point is, those who have less advantages, whether physically or socially, are to be shown more honor. Because what is honorable now in this new society under Christ is people who follow his example, who take the lowly path. And in fact, if, if you just study this a little bit longer, men, our strength or our social standing or whatever it is that is above and higher is seen as perhaps a hindrance to following the example of Christ. Your advantages become disadvantages in the economy of God. So honor those that are weaker. This is the point. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not a degradation of your value. Just acknowledging that often you're disadvantaged. That's what the Bible is saying. And some of that is the curse. Some of that is just the nature of childbearing. Right? When when unplanned pregnancies happen out of wedlock, who's left there holding all the responsibility often? It's just a disadvantage that is naturally part of biology, part of society, and all of this. And Peter's exhortation to husbands is, because of that, because they're disadvantaged, you must honor them. That's the point. And then he speaks of gospel equality here. This is a ground. Grammatically, since they are heirs with you of the grace of God. We won't spend a ton of time here because it is so basic and so clear. All that was set up in verses 9 and 10 about A holy nation, a royal priesthood, that applies equally to both men and women. She is a royal priestess. Husbands, do you view your wife that way? She's a believer. Husbands, in the most fundamental sense, your wife is not your wife. That is a temporary assignment that is not her permanent identity. Thank the Lord. In death or in biblical dissolution, she will no longer be your wife and you will no longer be her husband. Your authority and your headship, whatever that is, is delegated. And your part in this drama is to display the excellencies of our God by submitting yourself to her good as an objective. She is to submit to your leadership. You're to submit your life to her good. You must be understanding. Gentle and lowly like Jesus. He wasn't gentle and lowly, so you wouldn't have to be. He was gentle and lowly to show you how to be. Husbands, we must see our wife as on equal footing before God. And maybe in a sense, a little bit higher in glory because 
She has had to play the part of the weaker vessel and put up with our failures more than anyone else. And the text ends with a warning to husbands. Finally, here we get a warning. So that your prayers may not be hindered. If you're a husband who, in hearing me say all that stuff about submission, about wives to their husbands, and you're thinking, oh yeah, this is what she really needs. Josh is on fire today. Great message. But at the same time, cringed when the word of submission was applied to you with the authority that God has put in your life, you might just be a hardened hypocrite. And this is God's grace in your life to expose hypocrisy in your heart. I'm not naming you right now, but the Holy Spirit might be. I don't know your heart, and I can't see what's inside. But understand that there is barely anything so frightening as being joined to a husband who will not to submit to the authority structures that the Lord has placed in his life. It is terrifying. It's a word of caution to the unmarried in this group too. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you look for. There is a being out there who did not want to submit to anything over him, but wanted everything to be in submission under him. And I don't need to tell you who that is. Husbands, don't be like him. Same idea for pastors, anyone in leadership. The dynamic of power is the reason for this warning. Husbands do have more power or authority or whatever we would say, more strength, more social advantage. And so Peter gives us a warning. And that's the point. Peter is saying that if you're not an understanding or honoring husband, if you're not trying to be or don't care to be, then God will oppose you. God will make himself your enemy. There are only two types of people, as far as I can see in the Bible, that God does not listen to their prayer. It is the faithless and the high-handedly wicked. And husbands, if you're not being an honoring or gentle or patient husband, God puts you in one of those categories or both. And he will arrange himself from heaven to cut your prayers off at the past. That's the, that's the flavor of this term, hindering. The, the imagery would be your prayers are going up and he swats them down. He's not going to listen to you. Just imagine if you were in God's shoes, if you have a daughter, or if you could imagine yourself as having a daughter who goes on a date with some guy and he mistreats her or speaks down to her belittles her or actually raises a hand against her. And then that same guy comes and starts asking you for stuff. What's your response to a guy like that? That's how God feels. And that's just a, a smidgen of a picture of how mistreatment of his daughters will be received by him. Don't be that guy. Ending on a down note of warning may feel like a bum deal, but that's how the text ends. It's a summons to repentance, especially for husbands. If we can really let the gospel, 
Not just roles for marriage, but the behavior of our Lord Jesus and and the laser focus on salvation animate our lives all the way from how we submit to authorities in our lives to how we treat each other in our marriages. Even if they disobey the word, then we would be salt and light in the earth. We would be the light of the world. We'd be the city on the hill and the Lord would add many to our number every day. Let's pray for the grace to do so. Father, I pray that the central social construct of marriage, both in the world and in the church, would be revitalized by obedience to your word. Make us humble, especially those of us with more strength and power, due to our gender or our social standing, cause us to emulate the behavior of Jesus towards those in our charge. We ask it all for your glory, that you might save many. Help us leverage even our marriages for salvation to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.